Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. Views expressed by participants are personal. Educator and sales leader. These are two ways you can describe today's guest, Ivan Pehar. Ivan's media career started agency side, where he worked at a number of agencies, including Mediacom and OMD. His work in performance marketing caught the eye of AOL, which recruited him to manage advertising campaigns for their home internet service. He pivoted to AOL's media sales department after the company got out of the ISP business and went on to hold senior media sales roles at Sympatico MSN and Yahoo. Ivan is currently the manager of large client solutions at Twitter Canada. And when he isn't helping brands creatively engage audiences in 280 characters or less, he's teaching college students the fundamentals of advertising. Well, Victor, I actually have another job. I started this year, so I also lead our agency partnerships here at Twitter. So I I lead the CPG vertical as well as travel, finance, and government. And my role really is to look out 12 to 18 months, what are the trends we're seeing in in these verticals, and really ensure that the team has support one-to-one on a daily basis. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? So I grew up in Mississauga. Another Mississauga guy. Two of us in the room. So Victor, I have to ask you, where in proximity to square one did you live? Uh, Not too close. I was more Dixie Mall than square one. Probably about a good 15, 20-minute drive for me. So it's funny that as two people from Mississauga, we use that as sort of our center, right? Like how close were you to insert, you know, square one? It's the nucleus. It is the epicenter of that city. Yeah, so I grew up in Mississauga. Uh, now I'm actually just sort of border Mississauga, Oakville. I always grew up in Mississauga. So the commute to work has always been a 55-minute go train ride, subway, or, you know, heaven forbid, I take the car. What high school did you go to in Mississauga? So I went to Father Gates. Oh, your uh, Father Gates I was Yeah, the green sweater. And we were the first cohort that actually opened that school. So it was pretty interesting to walk into that, you know, after Labor Day. And the entire school was looking around, not really knowing where they were going. Brand new school, lockers, gym, everything? Yeah, it was actually a funny story. I had to share my locker uh, with a guy named Pete, who's on the football team. So when you're sharing a locker with a guy who's on the football team, you can imagine you get like less than a third of the locker space with all of his football equipment in the, the locker. We, we didn't have a football team at Cothra Park. The rumor was that we sold all of our equipment to buy a baby grand piano because we were in art <laughs> school. I'm not joking. That's what it was. So what was life like growing up for you in Mississauga? So I grew up uh, first-generation Canadian. So as a kid, I wanted to be the next you know, right-winger for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, and my dad, who really had no interest in hockey, said, well, that's not going to happen. So we're going to put you into soccer. And that's really where my passion for soccer uh, started at a, at a really young age. Um, I never got to fulfill my dream as being a, a Maple Leaf player, but you know, soccer was something my dad had me playing probably four or five times a week. Uh, the best part, Victor, is that at the time, for 50 bucks, you get a trophy, you get a kit, you get a dinner at the end of the year. What else did you need? Photographs, can't forget that. You get the, the team photograph as well. What team do you support? So I'm a huge Liverpool fan. So we can oh, go. Coincident. Didn't they just win the Champions League? They, they won the Champions League, uh, which was really exciting. Uh, I was one of, I guess, three people here in the Twitter office that were actually watching the game. Um, a lot of people walked in. They said, hey, is this the World Cup? And we're like, no, guys, oh, the God. Champions League. <laughs> it's the worst thing you can say to a <laughs> soccer fan. Did you have any influences growing up? Anyone you looked up to? So I'd have to say my parents uh, coming here to Canada 
really without anything. It's sort of that rags to riches story. You know, really it's hard work and dedication. And I think those are really the influences that are formed at a really young age that help drive who you are and what drives you as an individual. So I'd have to say it's my parents. You said your parents are immigrants in your first generation. Where did they emigrate from? So my parents came over from Croatia. Uh, so I was born here in Toronto, actually just down the street at, at St. Joseph's Hospital. Um, so there's a lot of cultural nuances that my parents brought over uh, that we still sort of celebrate to this date, whether it's cuisine, uh, traditions around you know Easter and Christmas that still live on now, even though I'm married and have my own family with my kids. So being a football fan and being Croatian, I got to imagine the 2018 World Cup was a very big deal for you and your family. Oh, Victor, you have no idea. The opportunity to watch those games with my father, both of us standing, yelling at the TV, my mom in the background being like, I can't believe you guys are doing this. And to actually have my dad, after Croatia beat England to advance to the finals, stand up and tell me that we've already won. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, a billion people will watch this game. They will see our flag. They will hear our anthem. They will see our, our team. And I think when you're able to bring it back down to that level of what's really important in this world and the pride that you have based on where you grew up and, and what your family is. Okay, so being a media guy, I'm going to ask you this question. What do you think has been more beneficial for Croatia or even Croatian tourism? Game of Thrones or the World Cup? Oh, gosh. You know what? As a, as a lover of the beautiful game and Game of Thrones... I have to say the Game of Thrones. I mean, when you think about, was it eight years? I think it's eight years it's, it's been, been running. Eight or nine years. I think they took a break. But all I know is that King's Landing was in Malta for season one, but it's been Dubrovnik from season two onwards. Yeah, and they actually have tours. I've uh, done those tours. So yep. I'd love to hear from you, Victor. Like, how do you find those tours? Was it good? It wasn't just a Game of Thrones tour. It was also a Star Wars tour. I had no idea the previous Star Wars film, if anyone had seen it. There's a part where they're like in Space Monaco, and Space oh, Monaco yeah, yeah, happens yeah. to be Dubrovnik, where yeah. they were going through the streets. It was an interesting tour because they would take you out onto a dock. You'd look out and you'd be like, okay, this is beautiful. And then they'd hold up a photograph, and the photograph would be a scene from the show where they photoshopped out maybe a restaurant that was on the hill in the background, and they've put certain oars on the actual dock, and then there you've got Cersei standing there looking out as the ships come in. I thought it was pretty surreal. I mean, after watching last season, I'm picking out little points in King's Landing going, I know where that is. I know where that is. Or yeah, a church it's pretty amazing. I think when you think of the tourism and all that, the Game of Thrones has sort of, you know, the masses have flocked, right, to the yeah. Rovnik. And, and when you're there, you know, the ability to experience, there's that one episode is it the walk of shame, right? Yeah. As, she, as she walks down and everyone's yelling, shame, shame, shame. shame. <laughs> uh, and just to see that, right? And as a kid, having gone there and experienced it, uh, it's just amazing to see all the, the traffic and sort of tourism that's happening now. What was your first job ever? My first job ever. Okay. It was summer and it was after I graduated Humber College, I was working at Future Shop. I worked in the distribution center at, Furni at Future Shop. This is where all of the defective products, TVs, radios would come back to this uh, warehouse in Mississauga. And my first day on the job, they said, hey, go over there and you see that 36-inch TV, which at the time was the biggest one. Yeah, could. that's pretty big. Tube uh, TV, I assume? Tube TV. Yep. And they said, go over there and pick up that TV and bring it here. So I walk over, bend down, I go to lift it up, and it just falls flat forward. And, you know, they all start laughing and they said to me, well, rule number one, 
always lift with the heavy part towards you. Now we were fortunate that everything was broken already, uh, but it's sort of, you know, the, the ongoing joke whenever someone started in the warehouse, but they knew what they were doing when they told you that they did. Yeah. This was all scripted and planned your initiation. Then at future shop, <laughs> you mentioned you had graduated from Humber college. What did you study there and why did you pick Humber? So I went to the North campus. I took, I studied marketing and why did I take marketing? I remember back in high school, sitting down with one of the guidance counselors and they said, well, what do you like doing? What interests you? And I said, well, sports. And they said, well, this really isn't a job, you know, if you're an athlete. So I said, well, I'm interested in sort of, I analyze ads and I'd sit on the couch and sort of reflect as I see ads and be like, was this effective or not? And would sort of mentally score different ads I would see throughout, you know, an episode of who's the boss or a different show that might be airing and just sort of mentally, you know, have a scorecard on was this effective or not? And I think that was maybe the foray into really understanding media and at a really young age, not knowing I want to get into media, but having this thing that I was just mentally doing on a regular basis. You were already doing what the program demands of you. So it was a natural fit. <laughs> what was your first gig in media? So my first job was at Mediacom and, or MBS, I guess at the time. Oh God, there's, there's an acronym I haven't heard in a while. MBS, uh, what was RMI? The, the media company. The media company. <laughs> yeah. So that was back in the old office up in Yorkville. So that was, I uh, vaguely remember that. I think accelerator was also in that. They were, uh, yeah, that's they right. Were in that meeting. Yeah. They were in that office. Yeah. So up at uh, Bloor and Avenue road. Yeah. Uh, I know exactly University, where it was right there. So my first job, I was hired to clear invoices. I was in the accounting department. What was interesting, I think at the time is that Bobby, who's still there uh, at the time, he was the mailroom guy. And I think Bobby had more street cred than I did internally. <laughs> But that's the way people did it back then. You started it in some facet of the company and then you moved on from there. And, and didn't you try applying to how, whatever job had so, come up internally? So Victor, HR approached me and asked me, they said, are you happy? And I said, of course I'm happy. And they said, well, why do you keep applying for every single job we post? <laughs> and it came down to, I just wanted to learn. And, and I felt that, you know, being in a role for, you know, three to six months, I said, well, how else can I continue to learn? And I think that was sort of, internalizing, how do I continue to grow my current role? And, and HR said, well, there's other ways for you to grow than just trying to apply for other jobs and we can get you to work on side projects. Um, you know, you can help other teams when they're, you know, down a person. So I think it was really that desire to learn. And, you know, some might say your learning is done when you're finished school. I think it just starts when you're done school. Oh God. I tell, I lecture at colleges sometimes and I let them know in the closing of my presentation, if I say to them, I go, if this is the last bit of education you think you're going to get, you're not going to get very far in this industry at all. No, it's, you have to stay up to date. Yeah. Right. And it's on each and every one of us, right. To stay up to date on things that are happening in the industry. So at Mediacom, you did move into a planner role. How did you finally get out of the accounting department and into the I, planner role? I, I think just pestering HR. <laughs> Um, after, you know, so many weeks and months, they said, okay, sure. Let's, you know, put Ivan in. But I think what's important, less about moving into the new role, more about the hard work and determination that you need to have when you're working, right. To show, you know, that you are valuable to an organization that, you know, they're now giving you a role, not because you want a new role, but because they believe in you. From there, you moved over to e-havior. Oh gosh. How the, did you find your way there? Because so, 
correct me if I'm wrong, you were like employee one, employee zero there? Yeah. So uh, at the time, Lee Smith had his own digital agency. So if you rewind the clock back to late 99, early 2000s. Did they even use the term digital or was it interactive? Oh, geez. It was multimedia. They loved using those terms. Yeah, it was multimedia. I think the expectation was that we were just a little different. We didn't look like all the other traditional planners. Uh, And we were the digital arm for all these agencies. We were working with FCB and Palmer Jarvis because at the time they didn't have a digital team. So they would contract the work out to Lee and, and I at the time to be that digital team. And I still remember, Victor, going back to those days, uh, running you know, the first ever Flash ad oh, that we ever saw and going from a GIF to a Flash creative, right? It was mind-boggling. It's like it was, discovering magic. It was like night and day. You're like, oh my God, we've been waiting for this for so long. Or even the days of ad serving. And I remember going to New York, meeting with DoubleClick and, and them showing us how ad serving is going to change the world. Because at those times you'd have to actually send over your creative and your URL and have to wait for the site to actually give you a report of what happened. Mm, just site served. That's yeah, it. At the time, yeah. At Mediacom, you were itching to do a number of other roles, but it looks like at eHavior, you got that opportunity to do it. How many different hats did you wear? I think I wore literally every single hat that was possible. I probably invented roles that didn't even exist <laughs> at the time. And I think the beauty of working at a really small shop is that you get forced into areas that you don't feel comfortable, right? And you just sort of adapt and learn on the fly versus a very structured organization where you come in every single day and you do two tasks every single day of the entire day. So the ability, and I'm really fortunate to have worked with Leanne at the startup because you got to learn on the job. And if a client said, hey, can you do this? Well, the answer was always yes. And then you hang up the phone. (laughs) And then you run back and we say, well, how do we do this? We just said, yes, that we can do this. Really being resourceful. Your next move, that was to the DAC group. What brought you there? So, uh, you know, as the downturn happened in early 2000s, I needed a job. I was getting married and I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity at the DAC group. And what's interesting is that I really got to learn a lot about how the directory business. Now, when someone says yellow page advertising, you know, it doesn't scream out innovation, but what I can say of my time there, like that's a lot of hardworking media, right? When you think about, you know, Google search today, mm-hmm. when you think about yellow pages, that was someone looking for a specific thing, right? A specific, a plumber to fix something that, that they need. So the volume of queries on yellow pages were necessarily that high, but the quality and sort of conversion that we saw were extremely efficient. From there, you moved on to OMD, and that kind of closes out your agency career. What brought you to OMD? And that was, you know, circling back again to Lee, Lee Smith, where, you know, after his agency agency shut down, he then basically plug and played and, you know, took his old agency and dropped them into OMD. So the four or five of us that had worked together at eHavior were literally just all dropped in to work at OMD and essentially created the digital team. So you got the gang back together. So we got the crew all back together. Um, different infrastructure, having worked at a small shop to now a more structured place. But I think, you know, being the early adopters, everyone in the office would sort of lean on us and say, hey, can I get something from you? Being a, a lean organization, you know, you just have to be resourceful again and just find the right people that can help you. One of the best things we did is we taught some of the individuals how to do their own ad serving. 
Okay. And it was a great opportunity for individuals in the office to take on some of those responsibilities. And again, going back to it to continue to learn. One client you worked on at OMD was Dell. And that experience actually kicked open the door for your next career move. What happened there? With Dell at OMD, we had this spreadsheet that we called the monster. And it was literally, if you vision 150 columns by 150 lines, where you analyze every single element of every creative, every creative messaging. So what happened is that having worked on a performance-based advertiser like Dell at the time, AOL tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, could you replicate what you're doing with Dell in driving computer sales to actually help us drive our ISP business? And if you go back to the AOL days, you remember, God, you couldn't walk two feet without seeing one of the CDs or the discs. The CDs were like usually packaged with a local paper, 14 hours free per month. That's the way they sold the internet back then was on a per hour basis. Yeah. So I was brought in to help drive that business. Okay. So it was direct response for ISPs. DR for ISP. But something happened though. The industry changed a couple of months into your tenure at AOL. How did that affect you? So I vividly remember coming to work that day, an all hands meeting. The MD at the time said, well, we are shifting away from an ISP model to actually sell advertising. And someone who was brought on as my core competency to drive ISP business, I start to think, well, what's next for me? And, and I'll never forget this. I remember walking back and you know, there's a few individuals on my team that had white envelopes on their desk to, to go see HR. Fortunately, I was one of them that didn't have an envelope. So everyone around me was gone. And I had the head of sales who came over and said, I have an opportunity for you in sales. And that was sort of my, I'm not going to say got pushed into sales, but it was my foray into sales. So how did your first sales gig treat you? It was tough. I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, what I did take is, you know, having interacted with sales reps over the last seven to eight years from the media side of it, I took some of those good qualities and crafted my own, I don't want to call it sales kit, but my own approach. I never called myself a salesperson. I was always someone who solved my client's business challenges. And that was sort of the approach I took from the very early days. Uh, what I didn't want to be, you know, is someone to be perceived as a used car salesman. And that's a hard thing to shake off in this industry sometimes. Really hard. So did you find that you could empathize with your agency colleagues? Like when you were on the sales side, you could empathize with them and go, I understand what you're looking for because I used to be in your chair. And that kind of helped you craft what you needed to do to be successful? A hundred percent. And what I did is my proposals or the information I'd give back to the agency to respond to an RFP or, or a program, it would always be rooted in data, Comscore data, insight, what the opportunity is. And it was always something that the agency could lift and drop directly into their decks. And I think those early days, taking the approach of data first, I think really sort of helped drive some of the early success that I had in sales. How did you find your way to Simpatico MSN? So this is a funny story, Victor. I remember this vividly. I was watching Monday Night Football, and at the time, the sales manager sent me a, a ping on MSN. MSN Messenger? Remember just, it? Oh, I remember MSN Messenger. So he just sends you a message. So he sends me a message on Messenger saying, hey, uh, we're looking to, to add a few new people to the team. Would you be interested? And quickly responded, yep, let me know what you need from me. Three days later, I was at the office, met with a bunch of people. Two days later, I got the offer. Uh, a week later from that first Monday night football ping, I had the, the role at Simpatico. 
And this was when Simpatico was in its heyday. This so was you were there for all the magic. This was back uh, the partnership with Microsoft. So it went back in 2007. How did your role at MSN differ from what you were doing in a sales position at AOL? You know, the major difference was that when you had reach, you had scale. Uh, we essentially had something that the market was looking to buy. You know, at the time when you would talk about takeovers being the largest portal, can't even, can't even believe I'm saying portal. I know being, that, that that's a word that's kind of out of our vernacular now. Yeah. Being the largest portal at the time is that people would always want to be on that, you know, homepage. And I think, you know, at that time, being the destination for Canadians, brands said, well, I want to be on Simpatico, but I want to be there in a unique way. And you can start to think about things that were rolled out like wallpapers and bokens and things that weren't really part of everyday buys that were happening uh, in media. Talk a bit about your move to Yahoo. I find this one interesting because I know at one point, basically Simpatico and Yahoo almost shared an office or a floor at least. Yeah, we were so Simpatico. If I go back into the archive, I think Simpatico was on five, five or six. And then Yahoo was on seven or eight. So you at least had a floor separating you guys. So there was a little bit of floor. Uh, there was a few floors separating us. But I think part of the reason why I left there is I wanted to get into an organization that was global in scale, but also allowed an opportunity for me to travel and take my skills and port them over to the U.S. and possibly explore an opportunity of moving to the, U to the U.S. The other draw of Yahoo was really about, again, going back to my AOL roots around working for an organization that was solely focused on driving revenue from an ad model. With that, you get things that, you know, just inherently you have to do, right? Pushing the boundary on creative. Um, first, first to market opportunities around um, opportunities on the site when you're solely focused on driving revenue and that being your primary source. You mentioned the opportunity to relocate to the U.S. Is that a goal for a career goal for you? Just a point of interest? I mean, at the time, I thought it was something I wanted to do. And you have to remember, if we go back to 2008, 2009, the economic downturn, you know, no one had any money, clients weren't spending, and an opportunity came up in Santa Monica to go work on the Warner Brothers business in the U.S. And, and my wife and I thought about it for a really long time and ultimately decided it wasn't something that we were going to do. But it was a decision that I made and that we made together. So my wife said to me, I never want to be married to someone who is disgruntled and says, I wish I insert. So, you know, deciding that at the time it wasn't the right thing for our family, but it was something that I feel comfortable with now. And who knows where the future will lead me? Well, the future is right now and it's the present. So talk to us about Twitter because you came over and you were one of the originals to start the Toronto or the Canadian office. Yeah. So that was back in May of 2013. And you have to envision leaving Yahoo where there's structure and process in place to, you know, this new thing called Twitter. There were four of us that walked into that office that first day. I remember getting handed my computer and here you go. And the amount of clients and agencies saying, hey, can we talk to you? You know, tell us more about what's happening with Twitter as I was still sort of understanding you know, what the offering was. Was it overwhelming at the time? Because I imagine when that's announced, like, I mean, it's not like Twitter was new to Canada, but it did, I wouldn't call them necessarily new. So I imagine when you guys were out there, everyone was calling you. Everyone was pulling you in every direction. Yeah. And I think part of it was a lot around education. 
help us understand how do we use this platform called Twitter, right? So there's a lot of brand recognition. Everyone knew the bird, but what they didn't understand is, you know, how do we actually activate on this platform? How do we drive our KPI? How do we run successful campaigns? What creative do we use? And if you remember, Victor, at the time, it was literally 140 characters of text. Yeah, it was pretty, you were pretty limited with what you could do. No images, no video, couldn't really do much. It was your statement and that's it. And people were just warming up to hashtags. Didn't you guys invent the hashtag? Well, the hashtag was actually invented by users uh, back in the early days of Twitter. Oh, right? that I didn't as, know. As were the, the at symbol, right? And these are all sort of things that, that I definitely know came from you guys. That started based on users and users who craft the messaging, who craft what the products look like on the platform. When you come into Twitter day one, do you guys have the ability to craft the processes for the organization in Canada, or is a lot of that stuff transplanted from the way they do business elsewhere? Well, I think, you know, when we started in the very early days, there had been at the time, you know, markets opened across the world. And you know, we were fortunate enough that enough markets and offices had opened up that, you know, through trial and error, they said, hey, here's what we think is the right recipe based on, you know, the Brazil office opening, other offices opening around the world to then sort of craft, here is the playbook for launching an office. When you go in and you speak to clients, are you doing it from two perspectives? One being, say, a paid ad model and another one from, here's how you manage Twitter organically? Yeah. So, you know, back in the early day or even now, right, we look at good content is always good content. And of course, we help brands and partners leverage, you know, the power of the organic platform, the ability to be part of a conversation. But then we sort of quickly pivot to if we're looking at reach and scale, right, then that's a whole other conversation we have. And I think, you know, at the early days, we still sort of referenced, you know, if you remember, Victor, the Oreo Duncan, the, the lights went out in the Super Bowl. Was that the one in New Orleans? That was in New Orleans. Yeah, the New Orleans Super Bowl. Light goes, the lights go down, uh, Oreo tweets, you can d still dunk in the dark. We talked about that, and actually it was in a meeting last week where someone referenced that tweet, right? So good content will always be good, good content and resonate on the platform, but it's how do we take good content and apply reach to individuals? How does selling a social media platform differ from what you were used to before, the old school transactional uh, display or video ads? You know, in the past, you know, when you look at display ads, it was all about, well, we think you're interested in something because you're in this channel, right? We think you're interested in a mortgage because you're in this section, right, of the site. So really contextually targeting content versus now we're targeting tweets and content based on what we know about you, what you've raised your hand, what have you tweeted about? And you really sort of take a pulse of the planet around a specific topic and you're able to find people who are raising their hand to say, yes, I'm interested in this specific topic because I'm just talking about it, right? And I think you take, you know, sort of a stagnant, I'm reading something on a website to now I'm actually part of a conversation and having a conversation with someone. In your part-time though, you're also educating the future advertising leaders of tomorrow. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and what you're teaching. Yeah, so I've been teaching at, at Humber uh, for the last three years, uh, Centennial this year. And, and I think part of this passion that I have for teaching really comes from my time at Twitter. I would say that I'm an educator at Twitter. I educate brands and partners and agencies on how to best use the platform and decide I want to give back. As someone who went to Humber College, I want to give back to the students there. So before I started teaching, I was on the advisory board and helped craft the curriculum for the digital program. 
an opportunity came up three years ago to teach a class and I jumped at the opportunity. Now, the one thing I'll tell you is that when you start and take on a role of being a teacher, you actually have to craft the curriculum yourself. So you'll get a fancy two-page PDF on what you're supposed to teach, but then it's up to you, the instructor, to actually build a curriculum. So you've got to turn that into 10 weeks worth of lectures and assignments. And exactly. Yeah. And I'd say that first year is really the hardest. That's when you're basically doing everything from scratch. I'm sure what you're teaching has vastly differed from what you took at Humber, but by any chance, are you teaching the 2019 version of a course that you took? I'm not, unfortunately. I'm not, unfortunately. Um, I think this course has been redone for literally the past five years. The speed at which things change, right? Things we were talking about five years ago are still relevant, but not as relevant, that, relevant as they were at the time. So the ability, the same way that the industry pivots and moves and changes, so does the course curriculum at Humber. Just going back to what we spoke about, what certain things have changed in the curriculum over the last couple of years? Like what are you, what are you teaching now that you weren't before and what things are no longer prevalent? So what are we teaching that we weren't before? So I'd say with a lot of platforms, um, the emergence of platforms. So for example, right, uh, this last semester we talked about TikTok, mm. um, you know, and when I ask the class how many of them are using it, you know, a few of them raise their hands, followed by the next question, do you know what it was called before that? Like, I have no idea. I'm like, it was called Musical.ly, right? So the way that things change so quickly, right? Um, you know, we go into a lot of ads UIs. So we actually build campaigns in these platforms, okay. right? So, you know, it's that hands-on learning that we do in class, whether you're building campaigns in Twitter and Snap, Facebook, Instagram, you know, Google AdWords. These are the tools that my students are leaving with and have a deep understanding. Things that, you know, were in the curriculum a few years ago, uh, there's a thing called word of mouth that... Is that a technical term where you literally mean word of yeah, mouth? Yeah, it was, it was word of mouth, <laughs> okay. right? Uh, there was also, what else? There was blogs, that are still, you know, relevant, but, yeah. you know, used in a different way. Um, something that, you know, we've seen a rebirth again is podcasts. Thank God. <laughs> we got to get behind these. Considering that you've been teaching for the last three years or so, do you find that you're starting to bump into your students in your professional life? And are you chasing them for money? Oh, gosh, Victor. I was in a meeting today and I had an intern from the class this year and a student from the class two years ago. <laughs> and this is a regular occurrence. Right. And now the, the shoes on the other foot. Right. And I wonder how much they actually liked me as a teacher. But what I'd say is I will walk down any hallway in a, of an agency and this is what will happen. I'll hear, hey, sir. And I quickly turn around and what goes through my head in this checklist, what year were they in? Can I remember their name? Quickly <laughs> scan their desk to see if you can find something that has their name on it. But it's amazing. And when you see these, you know, former students who are now thriving and are now senior planners and, you know, really doing well, it makes, it validates what I'm doing, right? Because all I do is I just help them. I just help them open the door with some of the skills. And then it's really on them to continue to develop and learn. A couple of rapid fire questions. First one, which campaign are you most proud of? 2000 for Compact Canada. It was the first ever campaign that ran with a Vulcan. Uh, so like the floating <laughs> over the page ad, it was on canoe.ca. Oh God, canoe.ca. the click-through rate on that was probably north of 50%. And I think in part because people didn't know how to close it. They kind of like outstream video. Okay, next question. Favorite movie? Uh, favorite movie. I love Rudy. Uh, I'm a huge sports guy. So anything that is sports related, 
uh, I think Rudy is just like, it's a great movie. Do you like it also because it's an underdog story? Underdog story. I also like Notre Dame football. So it checks a couple of the boxes for me. Favorite song? Favorite song. Oh gosh. I'd have to say, because I listen to so many podcasts, I'd have to say that it's like whatever my daughters are listening to. So now I think it's, I don't know, Ariana Grande maybe is something that's, that's playing on, on regular repeat at home. <laughs> Best advice you've ever received? Is have a positive attitude when you go into the office. I think that is an expression of yourself. And when people see someone who comes in who is positive, happy to be there, I think just lays the foundation for just being a really productive and successful employee. Advice given to me once by a former boss was joy is contagious. Yeah, exactly. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I would say, don't be afraid to fail. I tend to think of myself as someone who's a bit of a perfectionist. You know, when you fail, it's not the act of failing, but rather it's what you took and the learnings you took from that experience. I think that's so crucial is the ability to learn from your mistakes and how do you take that and adapt that to future learnings. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? So if I wasn't in media, I'd be a soccer player. Insert laughter. I know, I know. For Liverpool? For Liverpool. We'll call uh, Jurgen Klopp. But, but I think I would probably be a teacher. I think my experience at Hummer College and Centennial has been so rewarding. And I think, you know, if I wasn't doing this job, I'd probably be a teacher full time. Ivan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Victor. Appreciate it. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.